This is the Trip Doctor Podcast. I'm Evan Jordan. I'm a tourism professor at Arizona State University. I've studied tourism for the last 16 years of my life. If you're interested in learning more about me or the research that I do, head to the Start Here page on GoTripDoctor.com. This podcast is all about traveling intelligently. In each episode, I will interview a tourism researcher about their latest research. Just like medical research or physics research or any other type of research, there's a ton of good tourism research being done every day. The problem is, most of it doesn't make it into popular media. I've created this podcast to translate that information from technical terms to easy to understand language that will help you make informed decisions in your future travels. After the first three episodes of the podcast are released at launch, new episodes are going to be released every other Monday. If you decide you like the podcast, please share it with others who you think might like to be more intelligent travelers. You can also subscribe to the podcast, you can rate it and leave a review. If you want to learn more about being an intelligent traveler yourself, head over to GoTripDoctor.com where you can take my traveler personality quiz, learn more about the impacts of tourism, and see tips and tricks for booking your trips efficiently, inexpensively, intentionally, and intelligently. Think about the images you're bombarded with every day on social media. Chances are you've got friends, family, and random celebrities constantly posting pictures of themselves in larger-than-life travel destinations across the globe, doing anything but the mundane tasks we all engage in during the vast majority of our days at home and at work. It turns out people may actually be traveling to those destinations we see on social media specifically because they think you'll like their posts. My guest today is Dr. Bynum Bowley, a professor at the University of Georgia. He recently published an article titled Social Return and Intent to Travel in the journal Tourism Management. In this study, he asked the question, does the number of likes or comments we think we'll get on a picture of our travels influence the places that we go? It turns out it does. In the back of people's mind is that they're simultaneously evaluating the functional features of the destination as well as these symbolic the meaning behind traveling to that destination. And so the, the, there's kind of this, um, in, in your mind, you're, there's this tug of war between, okay, this place looks great. It's going to meet my needs for what I want on my trip, meet my family's needs and I can afford it and it's attainable. And then also what will this trip mean to my, to me and my peers? What, what kind of image does it display? What is your favorite thing about traveling? What 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 gets you going when you when you're talking about planning a trip? I, I love the planning stage first of all. You know, it it gives me a chance to really daydream um, about places, and I love the kind of excitement of kind of hunting down different places to stay, different activities to do while you're in the destination. It's kind of really one of my main hobbies, and actually, I think I think I enjoy planning more than going because. If you're a big planner, you have really high expectations and then, you know, not all, they don't always live up to, to what you've been daydreaming about. So I really love the planning portion of it. And then, you know, being in the destination traveling, um, I love that like every day is new. 
you know, it kind of takes you out of your daily life and puts you somewhere different where you're kind of like hyper aware of all that's around you. Things are different, especially if you're traveling internationally. Um, Rick Steves has this great quote about travel, and I love it. He says that travel is intensified living is one of the last legal forms of adventure. And I really like think it is like a great adventure that you can still have because it's so unpredictable and everything's new every day. And I love Rick Steves too. And I feel like his travel philosophy really syncs up with my travel philosophy. And that's probably because I really learned how to first travel from Rick Steves um, in terms of being informed and, and learning about the host culture and just being a better traveler. I think he's definitely shaped, it sounds like, the way both of us think about travel as as well. So what about the number one place that you've been in the past? What's your favorite destination you've been to so far? I'd have to say Bolivia. Um, I went to Bolivia right after college in 2007, and we um, it was like the most raw tourism experience I think I've ever had. You know, most other destinations have some type of tourism marketing, like their governments or focused on attracting tourists and there's a whole tourism industry there but Bolivia was like you know it's kind of like stepping back into time and people weren't even that interested in your money you know you'd be right next door in Peru and they had like it was obvious that tourism was a big thing in Peru but when you're in Bolivia um, you, you, you kind of got that authentic experience where you felt like people weren't putting on a show for you and the people were really friendly and just a really cool culture and then you know you're super high up in the mountains, well over 10,000 feet. So that's probably, it's probably my favorite place I've been, you know, pre-marriage, you know, uh, marriage is definitely changes like how you look at travel because you got to have two people that um, have two different ideas of what's fun and trying to blend those together. Yeah. And then you add kids into the mix and that totally changes the way people travel. <laughs> that's true. So maybe I should have like three different places. I've really enjoyed traveling. Probably with my wife, um, we kind of always have this, debate over like you know how much outdoors should the experience be where i'm kind of on the you know end of the continuum where i love like wilderness backpacking you know week-long trips you know roughing it you know no showers tents well my wife likes hiking but you know is also afraid of bears and lightning and like some of the you know modern amenities so we we did this trip in france and switzerland called the hot route and you walk from chamonix France to Zermatt, Switzerland in 14 days. And every night, you know, you can stay at a bed and breakfast or a mountain inn or kind of like a little mountain hut. And so every night you had a meal, you could have a glass of wine or a beer, but you were like having really long days, you know, 14 miles, 3000 feet up and down, you know, so it was like, it got your journaling going, but then you had the comforts of home every night too. Wow. I'm, so, I'm sensing a little bit of a theme with your favorite travel destinations in that they're very adventurous. Uh, they're very out of out of the ordinary. What about? I know you have uh, you have kids now. So, what about with kids? Are you do you maintain that sense of adventure with kids? We've really tried to, and um, the thing that's helped us a lot. And my advice to any other parents listening out there is to have the 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 ratio in your favor from adults to kids. So we've had. Catherine, my, Catherine's my wife, we've had her parents come with us on many of these trips. So that gives us four adults to two kids. But last summer we did this thing called the, um, we went with San Juan Huts. I guess the trail doesn't really have a name, but San Juan Huts has a hiking route from Telluride, Colorado to Ure, Colorado. And the huts are separated 
for about five miles between each hut. And every the hut has sleeping bags. It has stoves for you. It's got pots and pans. It's got sleeping pads. So all you need to really carry is just your clothing and your food and maybe some diapers if your kids are still in diapers. So it gives you a chance to kind of have that backcountry experience, but then you're not caring very much. You're carrying, you're carrying very much on your back, and you get to be in some really beautiful places. That's sort of like a backcountry light. It's like you get the adventure, but with a little bit of comfort that you know you're going to be arriving at once once you finish with your hike. That's kind of a nice balance between all those things. Well, yeah, we really had a good time. Um, I would recommend it. So that's all past travel experiences, and it, it does sound like there's a bit of a theme in terms of adventure, in terms of hiking, in terms of getting out in uh, nature. What about places that you want to go? Are all of your next destinations places like that, or are you thinking about other places that you might like to broaden your your destinations a little bit? Sure. You know, I love like the perfect blend of nature and mountain culture you know I, I really love like just mountain cities and towns and it's because not only do you have the um, a place to get outside it's beautiful but you know also really neat people especially internationally um usually good food and good beer and you can kind of blend that adventure with with some culture you know places that are on the horizon um and it's really tr- kind of it's kind of tough to figure out with the kids like what can the kids handle at their you know, depending on their age right now, they're four and two. So they're kind of more active and wanting to walk, which means we can't walk as far because we used to be able to carry them. Um, some things that I have on the horizon that I just want to do, I don't know how I'll be able to do them with the kids. There's a thing called the King's trail in Sweden. It's a long distance hiking trail up around the Arctic circle. That's something I want to have on my list. Um, I also want to go to Corsica. There's a long distance trail there called the GR 20. It's supposed to be the most di- difficult long trail in Europe. But um, it, these long trails are really what suit my wife and I's need, needs. You know, we get to hike all day, and then there's huts that you stay in every night. So it's kind of that right balance for us as a family. So where do you go to find information about these places? Is this just like a hobby of yours, doing searches to find long trails with huts along the way? Or is there a, like an aggregated website that lists where you can find these? Well, there's definitely a European website um, that they, you can um, go to find these trails, and there's a whole set of guidebooks for them. And the name is, is slipping my slipping my mind right now. But Europe is littered with these with these trails. Uh, another great one is through the Pyrenees. You'd start kind of in the northwest on the, um, I guess on the Atlantic Ocean side of like on the Fran- on the French and Spanish border, and like walk all the way through the Pyrenees, basically to towards Barcelona. That would be a neat one to do. Um, I'm trying to think what other really good, really good trails. There's one in Tasmania called the Overland Trek. Trek I want to do. So some of them are. There's a consolidated website for Europe, but then the other ones, um, you know, somebody will post like, you know, great long distance walks, and I'll of course click on it and try to read through them. Sounds like there's a, a ton of awesome options if somebody's interested in that type of travel and a lot of probably great resources online and in forums and on various websites to find that information. Yeah. One thing I really like about that other people might like is that when you go to travel in cities, you know, your options are endless. You know, there's hundreds of hotels, there's hundreds of restaurants, there's museums, there's parks, there's, you know, sporting events or music, whatever, you know, there's like a thousand things to do. And that kind of stresses me out. 
But when you do these long distance trails, there's like one place to stay and they decide what you're eating for dinner. And you're, so you're just kind of like all the complexity of travel is kind of taken out. And then you have this really like you're walking through through the um, through the culture, walking through nature, and you really get to absorb it without any of the stress of like, where am I going today? You know, you just have like eight miles to walk. That's all you have to do. So it take, definitely takes the stress and the anxiety out of potentially figuring out, all right, what bus do I need to take? What train do I need to take? How much co- does it cost to get into the museum? What day is this museum closed? Where are we going to eat? You know, you don't have to answer any of those questions. And that sounds like it's probably an ideal type of travel for, for a lot of people out there. We really enjoy it. Uh, one of my favorite things about travel is that things go wrong. And in my opinion, when things go wrong, that's when you have the best stories, when you have the most interesting experiences and sometimes really the most authentic experiences because it it takes you into areas of a tourism destination that you wouldn't normally see if you have to solve a problem or find something that you lost or, or you get lost yourself. So I always like to ask my guests, what is an example of a time where things went wrong for me, for you in, on a trip? And I'm sure this has happened at, for you as a single traveler, as a married traveler, and as a traveler with kids. So you can take your pick, whichever you think <laughs> makes the best story. Yeah, it happens all the time. Yeah, um, what's an example of sometime this has happened and, and has turned out to be an awesome story that you end up telling everybody when you come back? Sure. When we... You know, by about 10 years ago, when we first went to Europe, we had this 30-day Eurail trip planned out. And like really early, early on in the trip, our, our train, we took an overnight train from Paris to Madrid and it broke down right on the um, French border. So I kind of like, you know, delayed our plans, I guess. But we went to this town called San Sebastian, which is in the Basque area. And we loved that. And then that kind of... Um, led to us really changing the itinerary around for the whole trip. Um, kind of coupled with that, um, I guess, I wasn't I know if it's a mistake, but something went wrong is we bought these URL passes under the impression that you could just hop on or off and it'd be like really easy and you wouldn't have to pay anything else. And so my parents had done this in the 70s and they're like, you have to get a first class ticket. You know, like you don't want to be in second class. And so we, we paid the extra money but when we got to, um, especially Spain, there was like a reservation fee associated with every ticket. And it was quite pricey. It was like 20 or 30 euros per a ticket. So you had the right to be on the train, but you didn't have the right to reserve it. And so like this completely like screwed up our budget because I was on this like 100 euro a day budget for two people, which was maybe impractical to begin with. But basically, um, in addition to like the train breaking down one day, you know, I got to Madrid finally and like realized how much it's going to cost. And we had like a little, little mental breakdown. <laughs> like, okay, we're just going to go to one place and stay put for like three or four days. And we went to this place called Tarifa. It's right on the Strait of Gibraltar. You can, you can see Africa and Morocco from there. And it was just a really like nice time to like kind of reboot and relax before we kind of entered more of the chaos of trying to, you know, go to like eight different countries in a couple of weeks. So maybe change your itinerary a little bit for the better because otherwise you would have been on the go, on the go, and instead you got to check out a couple of destinations. One that you probably wouldn't have gone to if your train didn't break down and another that you maybe stayed a little bit longer than you would have. And that's a totally different experience, isn't it? Yeah, um, it's nice to have like some downtime where you're actually able to like 
not have something planned. You know, I'm, I'm very much of a planner. Every day I have like an itinerary set out of what I want to accomplish. But um, usually that means you're, you're going so fast that you don't catch some of the subtleties of the dest- of the destination. Um, and you don't get you're not there long enough to really um, experience much. I have to tell you, my wife is the same way on planning planning trips. She's very much a planner. Everything has to be scheduled. We need to go, 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 go. And I actually wrote a blog post about this that I like to try and schedule a vacation from your vacation. So at various intervals in my trip, I'll say, we're going to take this day and we're going to do nothing. And it drives my wife insane. She's like, I I don't want to do this. It's going to be miserable. There's so much, so much stuff out there that we're going to be missing. And inevitably, you know, it's, it's a little bit uh, annoying for her, but we relax and we go to a cafe and we sit down and we read a book and you get to see things that you wouldn't normally see. You get to maybe get to know somebody or have a conversation that if you're on the go, that's not necessarily something that you're prioritizing. So I'm always a big proponent of planning a vacation during your vacation because it's it can be stressful. Like you said, there's stress, there's anxiety, there's all sorts of um, problems you can run into. And sometimes it's nice to just take a break. That's what I've done with the kids more, just you know, loading everything up in the car and trying to travel every day. And you know, that's pretty exhausting. So I've tried to at least have two days in the minimum, every place we go. That way we have a layover day and you really get to be there for a while. Well, let's transition now and talk a little bit about research, because that's what this show is all about, is taking tourism research and translating it so it's consumable by the everyday traveler. So Bynum today is going to be telling us about a study. The paper that he wrote is called Social Return and Intent to Travel. And full disclosure, this is a project that I worked on uh, with Bynum. So we both have experience in this area, but this is really his area of expertise. So Bynum, what I'm going to ask you first is to tell me about you as a tourism researcher and how did you get into tourism research and how did that lead you into into studying uh, social return and how it relates to people traveling every day? Sure. So kind of stumbled into being a tourism researcher. I was at the University of Georgia as an undergraduate and I was actually a forestry major. So just a traditional forester. And then we had a new major start my senior year and it was a recreation and tourism major. And I was like, okay, basically I can stick around a fifth ball and fall is very important in Georgia for college football. So I can watch another, another college football season and get um, a double major. So, um, that kind of really introduced me for the first time into tourism, and I, I really loved it. Now, I wasn't very mature at the time, and I was like, okay, I don't know if I really want a full-time job and to go into the industry yet. So I was like, let's go to graduate school. Um, I hear that's a good idea. And I looked into going to University of Montana pretty selfishly because it was out west. It gave me a chance to get fishing, be near Glacier National Park and Yellowstone National Park. So kind of went out there really not knowing what I was getting myself in, self into. But um, I had a great advisor. Her name is Norma Nickerson. And there was a really great project that fell into my lap. Right about this time, this was 2007, 2008, National Geographic had designated Waterton Glacier area up on the Montana, Alberta, and British Columbia borders as 
the crown of the continent. And they had this initiative where they wanted local residents to suggest sites for tourists to see. So instead of being a top down, like here's what the state or provincial government says you should visit. It was residents saying, this is what embodies my community. This is what makes us unique. And it had restaurants, it had hotels, had festivals, hiking trails, had mining tours, it was all types of stuff. And these were called geotourism map guides. And so that really kind of just kind of made me aware of how special these communities are and the source of pride that the residents can take from um, basically showing others what's unique about their home. And so that kind of just it gets to my passion of tour, my passion of um, tourism research is I really want to be able to help communities promote and at the same time protect the unique features that they have. Um, I think that they need to promote them, right? Because a lot of times in these rural areas, they need economic development. The um, forestry industry, the mining industry, and other type of um, extractive industries have fallen by the wayside for, for many different reasons of globalization and politics. And so they're kind of left with this beautiful area. So I want to help them promote those things, but at the same time protect them where they don't um, destroy that golden goose, or the, the goose that's laying that golden egg. So that's kind of my, my passion with, with research. How I got into this social return idea, it's, I was actually teach a class, um, it's for freshmen, it's called Travel and Tourism Around the World. And every student is required at some point to present on a current issue that's of interest. So just sitting in class, one student had this um, blog, I think it was a Huffington Post blog post. It was like, are selfies influencing where we travel? And she presented on it, I go like, I really think they are. Now, like this this article was just like, it didn't have any idea. It hadn't, hadn't done any research, but I'm like, social media definitely influences where we travel. So I was thinking we, you know, part of my research as a tourism researcher is developing survey measures to kind of capture these complicated ideas. And so I was like, we need to develop a survey that asks people about how social media influences their travel decisions. That sort of shows a really interesting way that some of us come up with research questions that we ask, because it can really come from anywhere. It comes from reading a news article or a discussion with a student in class or a discussion with a colleague maybe somewhere around the globe. So it's just fascinating that this idea came from a student presentation of a blog post about social media that's fascinating to me yeah i'm always just trying to look at like that's a really good idea and if, that nobody else has done that i don't at least i didn't think anybody else had done it you know you, as academics we read through the literature all the time so we kind of have a pulse of what people are researching but then if you, if you take your take a step out of academia for a while you kind of figure out what's really going on in the industry and i had seen this myself you know i you know, I'm guilty of it too. It feels good when people like or comment on your pictures. And I was like, you know what? I wonder if that's actually influencing people's decision, decisions at all. You know, will they choose one country over another because one's going to have more kind of um, social credibility that's going to make them more popular with their peers? And so um, that led. So is that is that what is that what social return is? You said social cr credibility. We've said social return. Can you just tell us what is social credibility and what is social return? Yeah. So social return is basically you have this anticipated positive social media feedback from your travel. 
So it's actually looking into the future. You're saying, okay, if I go here and post a picture of it, I'm going to anticipate receiving this much positive feedback. And that positive feedback could be likes, it could be comments, it could be shares. It could be lots of things depending on what social platform you're using. But it's, could, it, could it even be somebody contacting you outside of social media? Somebody giving you a call and saying, hey, I saw your post and that's, that's really cool. Yeah, like, for, for example, like, you know, I had a friend who just went to Finland and they saw the Northern Lights and they did all this really cool stuff with, you know, having reindeer sled rides. And, and I probably didn't even, like, do anything on the on the social media. But then I saw him at church. I'm like, man, your trip was amazing. Like, like that looks like an awesome time. And so that kind of, that person felt really good, right? Or at least I'm assuming they felt good that I acknowledged how awesome their trip was and how special it was for them. And so that would be like some social return. So basically any type of feedback you get from anybody, whether it's on social media, in person, over the phone, any, I, I hesitate to use the term likes, but like likes, social likes, anybody that likes what you did. Yes. And it's, I think it's, you need to be aware that this has been going on forever. This is, that's not new. Um, people have been traveling to impress others for hundreds of years since, you know, travel was a form of pleasure, not just for business or for war. Um, you know, people are like use travel as, as social leverage. So that idea hasn't really changed, but what has changed is how people use, use it on social media. You know, you used to have to wait to get back from your trip and maybe have a slideshow, maybe brag about it at a cocktail party to somebody else. But now you can be in the destination, kind of curating your experience of what pictures you share right to your friends. And so you can get that kind of instant gratification now of if they like what you're doing. And I think Yeah, you don't have to you don't have to wait until you get home. And you, you mentioned something that's really interesting because nobody's posting the pictures of them having a bad time. Like, oh, we had this terrible meal. <laughs> Not a lot of people post that. Like you said, it's curated, so what is that? I mean, people are only getting to see the good stuff. And this is having all sorts of issues with people outside of the travel industry. We're not going to get into that. But what does that mean? People are only posting the good stuff. Yeah, I mean, it, if anybody's been traveling, that that's not reality, right? You know, you have long days. You've traveled a long time. You're maybe not looking the best. Um, you might have had a bad meal. Or maybe, like, you spent all your money to go to that iconic site. Like, you get to Machu Picchu or somewhere, and it's cloudy. You know, or you can't even see the view, like, and you have nothing to post, you know, so people aren't, you know, like showing a picture of like you in the rain when it's, when it's supposed to be like this beautiful day. Um, so it, it kind of gives a false sense of the destination a little bit. And I think that's something, you know, any travel destination needs to be kind of a, aware of is when it's promote, if it only promotes itself, like under the, like the one out of 10 days, that's sunny or, you know, if it's, if it's something atypical, then it's really hard for future tourists to have that same experience when they go themselves. Tell me the story of this research. You said one of the things that you focus on is creating uh, measurements of things that are tough to measure. So tell me about how you did this study and sort of how, how the study happened. Sure. So um, I was working with you and Dr. Carol Klein and Do Dr. Whitney Nolenberg on a study about Americans traveling to Cuba. So Cuba was kind of a hot topic at the time because during the Obama administration, we were really loosening some of the regulations on going to Cuba. So um, I thought, you know, since that Cuba had been a kind of, I wouldn't say forbidden destination, but a destination that was really difficult to get to and not 
you couldn't get there directly um, from the U.S. unless you had, you know, a special reason to go there. It, it would carry a good bit of um, social clout with it, you know, that you might have a good bit of social return from going there since it's kind of a hard to get to off the beaten path, like, you know, restricted destination. So that's kind of like why we chose Cuba. But to measure these hard to measure ideas, we call them constructs. It's really hard to to ask questions about social return with just one survey question. When you ask it with just one question, you run the risk of people not really fully understanding that idea or what you're trying to measure. So what you do is you basically triangulate. You ask three to five different survey questions to get at that one big idea. And then you take the average of those questions to, as like the true response. So for the social return scale, there's questions like, social media posts of travel to Cuba make the traveler look cool, the traveler look more popular, the traveler stand out, the traveler look unique, and the traveler look savvy. So if we asked any one of those questions by itself, we might not get at the true understanding of how social media posts of that destination make that traveler um, stand out and provide them with that social return. So by asking many different questions, we can take the average of them and be more confident that we're truly measuring that idea. And this is especially useful as a strategy when you have things that you can't measure like with a ruler. Like, so I have a desk, I can measure this desk is three feet long, but you can't measure anticipated social return and say, oh, this destination has six anticipated social return or this destination has 10 anticipated social return. You have to ask a bunch of questions that get at what we think uh, social return really is. Is that correct? That's correct. Because this is like before somebody's gone. So this is kind of like you're in the planning stage and you have on your horizon, you have all these different places you could go in the Caribbean. And so this is kind of having them look forward and say, if I go here versus here, how much social return would be provided. Now you could look at, you know, how much people like pictures of Cuba versus Jamaica, but that, that's after their trip. But it's really important to know that this research was kind of looking at the before they went. Well, that's especially important when you're, when you're wondering, does this influence where people go? Right. So we kind of have to ask that question before somebody goes there. Otherwise it's not really measuring the say that the thing that we say we're measuring, right? That's correct. And that's, kind of where the, the second part of this research went. So the first part was we have to make sure that this scale we've developed to measure anticipated social return actually is reliable and valid. And so you use a bunch of statistics to show that. And then once you've proved that this is really a good measure of social return, you can use it to predict things like someone's intention to travel to Cuba. And that's what we did. We actually asked people how likely they were to travel to Cuba within the, ne within the, within the year and then within the next five years and the next 10 years. And then we looked at the relationship between this anticipated social return and their intent to travel. And kind of the, the neat finding was that the social return did influence their intent to travel and by itself could explain anywhere between 25 and 29% of the reasons someone would, would go to Cuba. Is that a lot? That's a good bit for one construct. You know, um, people's travel decision-making is, it's really complicated. You know, it, it, a lot of things go into mind, right? You know, one, can you go there? You know, there's kind of what type of restrictions. Also, do you have the money? Do you have the time off? Um, do you find the place attractive to begin with? And so there's a lot of things that go into there. So if you can explain 25% of the reason someone goes based upon anticipated social media feedback, I think that's, that's pretty good. 
So this is this is a fairly significant reason that somebody might travel to a, des- a destination based on this research that we did. It is. And I think the way that you need to interpret this research is that it's not that alone. You know, there's all these functional features of the destination, such as the weather, um, you know, the amenities that, that it has, um, the price of it. And so kind of in the I think the way that I would try to explain this is that in the back of people's mind is that they're simultaneously evaluating the functional features of the destination as well as these symbolic the meaning behind traveling to that destination. And so there's kind of this, um, in in your mind, there's this tug of war between, okay, this place looks great. It's going to meet my needs for what I want on my trip, meet my family's needs and I can afford it and it's attainable. And then also what will this trip mean to my, to me and my peers? What, What kind of image does it display? You mention in the article there's something that's called the bandwagon effect and something that's called the snob effect. Sure. And so that might be actually influencing whether or not somebody is utilizing this anticipated social return to choose their destination. Can you tell us a little bit about those two things? Basically, you, you could use this in two different ways. And for the bandwagon effect, basically you're, you're motivated to purchase things because others are doing it. Everybody's going to Cuba. I need to go too. And so, you know, you're, um, the way that that would work, if, and these are for, this could happen at the same time. It could be two different motivations for going to Cuba at the same time, depending on that person and kind of their personality and how they relate to their peers. So under the bandwagon effect, you're like, okay, everybody else is going there. I see all these social media posts. Everybody looks cool that's going there, and I, and I really need to go there too um, because I feel like I'm missing out. Now, the other um, is the snob effect, which – Maybe I, I think I probably fall into this category more is that I'm actually searching for destinations that are really off the beaten path that other people don't commonly go to. And so I find, um, you know, I'm more likely to to mark or, you know, like or comment on something on social media that is really unique. I'm like, wow, that person really went off the beaten path and had a great experience. Just like the Finland example. I don't know many people that go to Finland in the winter and kind of have like this nice North, um, you know, Scandinavian experience, like with the Northern Lights. So I was like, that's pretty impressive, but that's kind of more of the snob effect because not many people are doing it. Like there's not a, there's not a bandwagon of folks to jump on and they're, that are going to do that. Yeah. When you mentioned your, your favorite travel destinations and places you want to go, these are all like hut to hut hikes in the middle of the mountains in destinations that are sometimes less visit. You know, you're not talking about going to the Vatican in Rome or going to Florence or going to Cancun for spring break. You're looking for those unique things. So those you're saying are potential examples of the snob effect? Yes, because you're looking for something that's going to make you stand out. You're not looking to fit in. The bandwagon, you know, you're that motivation is to fit in with others. While the snob effect is the, is the stand out because you have some type of knowledge that other people don't have. So can you think of any destinations? So right now, when you say the bandwagon effect, I'm thinking like, all right, what destination is going through this effect right now? And the thing that comes to mind immediately is Iceland. That's what I was Iceland's that too. destination that everybody is going to right now. And it's partially a function of airfares to Iceland are really cheap right, right now. But can you talk a little bit about more about either Iceland or other destinations that might be going through the bandwagon effect? And what are some destinations that might be um, a party to the snob effect? Yeah, well, 
I think let's talk about first how social media has impacted this. You know, that there used to be this huge lag effect between somebody traveling and coming back and telling others about it. And it, it was all word of, word of mouth. And, you know, it would take a long time for somebody to go to Iceland and then like get back and tell others about it. But social media has accelerated this really fast. You know, you can be in Iceland sharing pictures of beautiful waterfalls and volcanoes and, and hot springs and all that good stuff that Iceland has to offer. And somebody else can see it and like book their trip like the next day. You know, it, it can happen that quick. And when it happens that quick, there's not that time for the infrastructure to be built up to meet the demand. And so demand can grow really quickly for a destination like Iceland. And there's really not any enough hotels to meet the capacity of what's coming in. Yeah, there's been news stories recently about how all the accommodations at Iceland are essentially running at capacity and they're trying to figure out what to do because people just keep coming. Yeah, it's a big problem for them. I guess they're happy to have, have the tourism there, but they, they don't have where pe- for people to stay. I think they're sleeping in their cars and you know people are opening their houses up through Airbnb more and more to accommodate. So this has important implications for the destination if you want to be a sustainable traveler, right? You kind of need to be aware that these destinations that are potentially going through huge jumps in popularity because of people sharing on social media and the accessibility that we have with modern travel, this can lead to issues, right? Yeah. It'd be, since it's so new, it'd be interesting to see how this, you know, affects destinations development. You know, there's the old um, destination life cycle where you kind of like build up over time, you know, and then you kind of hit this carrying capacity where your, you know, your destination loses popularity because it's gotten so big, but like, it it seems like things will be changing much more rapidly. You know, like how long will Iceland be the the place to go before somewhere else pops up? You know, it it seems like the rise and fall of destinations could happen um, more rapidly. So what about snob destinations? Are there any out there that you can think of as examples of those? What a snob destination is to me would be different than maybe to you and somebody else, you know, (laughs) that makes sense because it's, it's all based upon your own, your own group of friends and what they're going to value. So like, you know, maybe Iceland is, is like the, the place to go for, for one peer group. And actually it could be a snob effect. While for me, I would evaluate it more as the bandwagon effect because it's already been very popular. But you make a really good point about that. It is in relation to your peer group because that's where you get your social return from. And so if all of my friends and family right now are going to Florida, let's say, and I go, I travel somewhere internationally where for one person, you know, going to London would not be out of the ordinary at all. For another, it could be a huge adventure. Yeah, I think that's one of the, the beauties of this, this scale is that everybody can answer it and you can answer it and you answer it basically with your own um, peer group in mind. If you're a traveler and you're thinking about planning a trip and you're thinking, I might go to this destination, I might go to that destination, do you have any advice in terms of thinking about social return? Because you've done this study that says it does play a role in how where people decide they're going to go. Do you have any advice for your everyday travelers? Are there things that they should be thinking about in terms of how this is influencing where they're going, how this is influencing the destination, 
how this is influencing the way that tourism marketers are marketing to people. What's your sort of main takeaway for your research findings here? You know, I would I would recommend people just to actually be aware of how this might influence them. That it's not actually bad, but not to let it kind of like drive your trip. You know, like it's going to take away from a lot of the enjoyment if you're constantly worried about curating this experience for others to see. You know, I would uh, I would try to like curate an experience that you really want. That's going to be good for who for you and the people you're traveling with, and to allow the pictures to kind of happen a little more organically than like really trying to set them up, you know, for the best social media um, post possible. And I, my advice, and this is just me personally, is just to like get a, don't take your pictures with your cell phone. Get like a you know a a, a nice um, digital camera and just wait to download all the pictures to get back. That way. Yeah, you can take a lot of pictures. I love that. You know, tourism photography is a lot of fun, but you're not like wasting your trip on social media, posting them, downloading them, worried about who liked this or who didn't. Like, just deal with all that when you get back. And then you actually have like the lag effect of that satisfaction. You know, that way you can plan the trip, enjoy the trip, and then you kind of reminisce about the trip and you get that social return when you get back instead of having that social return kind of intermingled with the actual um, joy of traveling while you're in the destination. Because that, like you said, could influence, oh, nobody's liking my pictures. Is this really, am, am I having a good time? You know? Like, I can't believe I traveled here. Like, I'm getting nothing out of this. Like, and just be like angry. Rather than just, <laughs> you know, enjoying the destination. Well, I think that is fantastic advice for people um, who are interested in being a more intelligent traveler and being a, a more sustainable traveler, a better traveler all around. So, Bynum, I want to thank you for coming on the show. It's been fantastic. I've enjoyed it. Thanks for inviting me. 